The following information is not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional and is not intended as medical advice. Stephanie Carroll encourages you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional. The entire contents of this podcast are based upon the opinions of Stephanie Carroll, unless otherwise noted. I want to talk about diet and nutrition. Now, I don't want to talk about everything, but I want to really focus on diets and dieting and what's available out there, what the science is really telling us, what I feel are the missing pieces in the puzzle of really gaining your health and losing weight and what we need to add to these protocols if we really want to make changes. Let's start with my experience and where I'm coming from with this. So I did study biomedical sciences and microbiology in college. So I have a foundation of anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pathogenic microbiology, all of those kinds of courses. So I have that foundation and then I expanded that with coursework in holistic nutrition and transformational coaching. So I do have a lot of information under my belt. There's all these diets and all this information out there that we have at our disposal. A lot of it is contradictory. We hear these studies in the media that say something is good for us. And then it seems like a few months later, they're talking about how that same nutrient or food can cause cancer and we should avoid it. Everybody talks about eating healthy, but no one's really for sure what healthy is because of all of these contradictory information and these different diets that come out that seem to be all over the place teaching protocols that seem to be in opposition to each other. What is really healthy? How do we figure out what is good to eat? You know, really, how do we pull all this apart and get to a place where it's going to make sense for us? Because right now, Americans are spending so much money on these diet books and exercise machines and memberships and programs is not really doing anything. Like we spend over $60 billion in the dieting industry. We really have nothing to show for that, for the most part. We are still unhealthy, overweight, chronic illness and diseases, autoimmune diseases. They're all increasing instead of going down. So where is the disconnect? What's going on? How can we change that cycle to where we're actually making a difference and setting up a life for ourselves and for our kids that is going to be better, not worse than what it has been in the past? Because um, that's really the trend we're on right now is that our life expectancy and our quality of life are going down instead of up, even with all of this scientific research and breakthroughs and all the information that's out there. So let's just talk about the subject of these diet books. The overarching theme in all of the books that I have, um, and I looked, I went through and I listed out the specifics of all the protocols. Really what we see is 
a reduction or elimination of the most inflammatory foods. So just like if we hit our toe or scratch our, our arm, we have the inflammatory response. It gets red, it gets inflamed, it hurts. We have a similar response inside our bodies when we eat specific foods. And that can really start a cascade of other things happening in our body to set us up for the diseases and the illnesses and the symptoms that we're experiencing. So the foundation for these protocols are to cut out those inflammatory foods. Now, they may or may not acknowledge that that's what they are doing. They may not face inflammation head on, but that's what they're doing. So what are these inflammatory foods that we're having cut out? The number one is going to be refined sugar. Two is gluten. Some protocols will say all grains. It just, it depends on what they're looking at, but majority is going to say gluten. Dairy is another big one, possibly eggs, soy, corn, caffeine, alcohol, and then possibly nightshades. And those are like your tomatoes and your peppers. But overall, the big five that we're going to see reduction or elimination in all of the diets is going to be the sugar, gluten, dairy, alcohol, and caffeine. So we cut those out, we reduce our inflammation significantly, and that allows to see more of what our body is doing, how it's processing things. So once we take those out, we are left with a diet that is full of whole non-processed foods. So things like fruits, vegetables, high quality meats, our healthy fats like coconut oil, avocados, and olive oil, nuts, seeds, and then our herbs and spices. So again, that's fruits, vegetables, high quality meats, nuts, seeds, healthy fats and oils and herbs and spices. So that is essentially it for the food part of the protocol. The difference and the inconsistencies that appear to be there are really on the macronutrient level. So macronutrients meaning your proteins, carbohydrates, and fat. With a keto diet, you have a higher percentage of fat with lower protein and carbohydrate, where something like a raw vegan diet is going to be mostly your carbohydrates with a lower percentage of fats and proteins. That's the major difference between all of these diets is just the percentages of the different macronutrients, if it even matters, because there's a lot of diets where the percentage of each isn't necessarily their focus. Their focus is just getting those inflammatory foods out and eating the, the whole foods. When it is a specific diet like the keto, you are looking at those percentages. Now, what percentage is good for you? What one is the best? That's going to depend on your personal physiology and your life stage. So somebody that is older that naturally their body is not going to digest fats and proteins as well is probably going to be better on some sort of diet where you have a lot of carbohydrates with fewer fats and proteins. 
Now, if somebody that gets hangry, really moody and irritable, has issues with the blood sugar spikes, then they're more likely going to do better on a paleo or keto diet where you have a higher percentage of fats and proteins that's going to help level out the blood sugar spikes and keep it more consistent. Now, all of that, again, is something based on your physiology. It's something that you're going to have to discover or talk to a doctor or nutritionist about what is going to be best for you. In addition to that, in a lot of these protocols, there is a little bit of information about movement, the high intensity interval training or yoga are usually types of movement that are suggested. Um, there's usually some sort of small paragraph or page about stress management. And then the book or protocol sends you on your way either onto the maintenance phase or a way to reintroduce some of the foods that you have taken out to see if they still bother you once you have brought your inflammation down. That's pretty much every diet book out there. You have the protocol based on anti-inflammatory foods, a little bit of information on movement, and a little bit on stress management. And then they send you on your way, maybe with some recipes in the back of the book. Now, one thing to be aware of with diet books in general is that, yes, they are out there for information and to put it in the hands of people so they can use it. These books are also alternative streams of income for the doctors and the nutritionists that are writing them. So I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I personally think it's a great idea to have more than one stream of income coming in. And with all of the healthcare issues that we're seeing, it, it makes perfect sense for them to find another way to make money and getting their experience out on more than just a one-on-one -on -one basis. Now, with that in mind, these diet books are going to be an entry point into a marketing funnel. So you have the diet book. It's relatively inexpensive. So $15, $20 maybe. Sometimes there's even a promotion on these books to where you just pay the shipping and handling. So $5, $6 and they give it to you for free. But then in the book or the protocol, somewhere in there, it suggests specific supplements a protein powder, bone broth, or maybe it's not even an actual product, but it's a support group or some sort of in-person walkthrough of the protocol, something like that. There is an additional way of them generating money. We also see these offshoots like, for example, the Adkins diet to where there were tons of products on the shelves with the Adkins diet branding. Not only were they selling the diet book to get you on their diet, they're also selling you the products to go with it. So it, that's just something to be aware of um, because when you start a diet or a protocol that you feel is best for you, you need to take that into account. Because a lot of these recipes and information they're giving about the protocol is going to include their product. And are you able to afford the $60 protein powder each month or bone broths and things like that can even escalate into the hundreds of dollars a month just to sustain this diet? So, you know, 
It has to be something that is practical for you. And is it going to be sustainable over a long amount of time? Another thing to look at, or I feel we need to focus on, is we're not setting our bodies up initially to accept these diets. What I mean by that is a lot of the times when we go into a diet, we just, we start by the food. Just change our mind, we're going to eat this food, but we're not looking at how our body is actually utilizing that. So if we have an issue with our digestive system and we're not able to break down or absorb the nutrients like we need to, is it really beneficial? Now, a lot of the foods that we're taking out in these protocols, those highly inflammatory foods are going to cause issues with our digestion. So if we take them out, it's going to start healing automatically. It's going to bring our issues down and make it a lot easier to absorb our food. But that is not taking into account any issues you may have with enzymes, such as digesting proteins or fats. So if you have your gallbladder taken out, that's something to take into consideration as well because you won't be digesting the fats as easily or readily as someone that still has their gallbladder. Even if you have your gallbladder, it may not be producing the bile and using it as is necessary. So these are all things that need to be optimized and taken into account before you start on any sort of diet or protocol. Laying the foundational work, making sure everything is great. Now, part of that that's becoming a lot more mainstream is our microflora. So the microbiome, the part of our digestive system that is made up of bacteria. Now, we have several bacteria that live in our intestines. They live in our guts. They can help us in a lot of different ways. So we've set up the symbiosis with these bacteria that live in our gut. They help us to absorb or digest materials. We can't live without them. They can't live without us. We have to have them. And there's been a lot of talk about probiotics and prebiotics. But what does that really mean? These bacteria that live in our gut, they can help protect us from more of the pathogenic kind, the kind that come in and make us sick by taking up the space so they can't attach. They also help to digest and can get more nutrition from the food that we eat. The bacteria that are in our gut need to be ones that are actually going to help us. And our diet and what we eat can affect what bacteria grow in our gut. So if we have some bacteria that prefer sugar and processed foods, as we eat those things, they're going to grow and multiply more. Then our gut will be primarily those types of bacteria. But if we switch and we eat more fruits and vegetables and whole foods, fiber and things like that, then the microbiome shifts and we have different species of bacteria that live there. Why is that an important thing? So we have what is called the second brain, um, our enteric nervous system. It's in our gut. It produces a lot of the neurotransmitters. Like 90% of our serotonin is actually produced in our gut, not in our brain. 
these two neural networks, our, our gut and our brain, communicate. And they communicate through the vagus nerve, through our hormones, and through our bloodstream. And it's not just a one-way thing. Before, we thought the brain just sent signals down and told the gut how to do its thing and to digest food. And that's not what we're seeing now. It's, it's a two-way communication where the gut is signaling and sending information to the brain, and the brain is using that to send out signals to other parts of our body as well as our gut. So part of these signals that are being sent from the gut to the brain are actually being sent by the bacteria in our gut. They are able to essentially hijack the communication system in our body and send signals to the brain on what it wants to happen. So if you have a lot of bacteria in your gut that feed on sugar and processed foods, if you cut back, those bacteria aren't going to want to die off and give over space to other bacteria. So they are going to start sending signals to your brain signaling cravings for sugar and the processed foods. And that makes it even more difficult for you to change your diet because now you have these bacteria that are hijacking your system to convince you that you need the sugar when you're trying to cut it out. As you make the choices and, and understand what's going on, you can switch the microbiome to where you're having the other bacteria that are going to be more beneficial by craving the vegetables and the fibers and things like that, that is beneficial to your body. You're working together for the same cause, to keep you healthy and to keep them healthy and viable. Not only do we have to worry about the addictiveness to things like sugar, alcohol, and caffeine, and what they can do to our brain. We also have to be concerned about these bacteria and how they are hijacking and adding more to the cause. Again, starting off by setting that terrain and making sure that our body is primed and ready to take in these nutrients is important. And a lot of the nutrition protocols and things that we have out there aren't telling us that we need to be paying attention to the terrain in our gut if we want to have a positive outcome. There are several protocols out there that can help with that. It can be a supplement. It can be some sort of like a colonics program to where you are taking fiber and specific supplements to help heal and clear out your digestive system. Or there's a book that's called The Prime to help prime your system, help restore the lining of your intestines, and shift the bacteria in your gut to shift your eating habits. With that focus, you're shifting the bacteria in order to shift your eating habits instead of shifting your eating habits to shift the bacteria. So it can go either way. You can do both of them together. What I like to do is do something like the prime to where you're resetting and healing the gut, but also take out those anti-inflammatory foods at the same time. So then you're working at both ends. It can help restore in a little bit faster way. So you're seeing results sooner because we do need to see results soon if we plan on sticking to the protocol or the plan, whatever it is. Another thing we're missing in this whole diet debate is the importance of really planning and making sure we know what we are doing before we start. 
if we look at the studies and the information that is given on the psychology of change and what we really need to make a change, there are several steps. Taking the action to start some sort of diet or to make some sort of change is the third step. The first step is acknowledging that you need a change or that something should change, but you're not really looking to do it right then. Then the second stage is investigating and creating a plan, something where you know you need to make a change and you want to, but not right now. And a lot of people skip that step. They skip the preparatory step more than buying a book or buying a piece of equipment. That's about as much prep as they get. So what I'm talking about is looking at all the aspects and everything that goes into making a change. Understanding that you're doing what you're doing because there's a benefit to it. So is really weighing the pros and cons of what you're doing right now against the pros and cons of the change that you're going to make. Because when you make a change, there is some sort of sacrifice. You know, there's something that you are giving up in order to do something else. And that can be painful. And sometimes we don't want to look at that pain. So we have good intentions of stepping into the change, but life happens and we have all of these, what we would say, negative outcomes and, you know, differences, then we kind of step back. And that could be something like, you know, even social isolation because we can't go to a restaurant because of the strict diet that we're on. Or your kids making fun of you because of the way you're eating. Another thing that we really don't think about is emotions. In my training as a holistic nutritionist, we were taught about the emotional side of nutrition how a lot of the times when we know what we want to do and we can't do it is because there is some sort of emotional basis, like emotional eating, where we have some sort of emotion come up, like boredom, anxiety, or fear. And we are in a pattern to where when we feel those feelings or when they start to come up, we go for food to either comfort them or to push them away instead of actually feeling the feeling. So when you change your diet and you start to eat healthier and you don't have those foods that can help mask the emotions, you have to be prepared on what to do. Do you need techniques on how to start feeling them? Do you need something like EFT, emotional freedom technique, to help tap on those emotions, to process them? Is it something to do instead of eating? If you're bored and you automatically go to the pantry, stare at it and get some food because you don't know what else to do, when you get that sense, what is something you can do instead? These are practical things that we need to look at. What is the plan when I feel a certain way? What am I going to do instead of eating when I want to eat and I'm not hungry? There are so many options. If you need help, there's plenty of lists online. Um, you can talk to people and brainstorm ideas. Um, but that's definitely something to think about before you start any sort of diet. What I feel is one of the most important aspects of a diet and something that is unfortunately missing in a lot of our lives, not just when it comes to diet, 
is the support system. There are tons and tons of amazing programs out there, not just for nutrition, but across the board. There's tons of programs out there by coaches and nutritionists and spiritual healers, and they'll be six weeks or 90 days. And that's great. That's a great time for you to make a change long enough for them to do their work, but it's short enough where you feel you can commit and it's a low enough price point where you will actually invest. I totally understand why people do it. But my experience with these programs is that you get in, you make this huge shift, you go through the protocol, you're great, you have all of the support. And then at the end of that three months or six weeks, all of that support disappears except for maybe a Facebook group or something like that. But for the most part, everything disappears and you're left to maintain all of these changes that you've just made in your normal life. You go back to your normal life, your normal stressors. Very little, more than likely, has changed in your outside world because a lot of the focus is on you eternally. So you go back into this world and it hasn't changed and you have, and you have to try to maintain that, and you're all by yourself. Again, going back to the research on the psychology of change, the maintenance phase is the part where having a support system is pivotal. That is the part where we need the most support, not the least. And yet the maintenance phase is where we're being sent off into the world. And that's why we're failing. We're having to go back to the drawing board and start over. And that is part of the process. There is a part of the process where you relapse and you have to go back and you start again. But that relapse is a lot less if we have a support system that is there prepared and ready. So when you start a protocol or any sort of diet, you need to make sure that you have a support system. It really needs to be somebody or a group of people, because community can be a great thing. It has to be a group of people or a few people where you can all commit to sticking to the program, to being there for each other, and understanding that this is a long-term goal. It needs to be, in my opinion, at least a year. Everyone coming together in support of each other needs to understand that this is not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. We have to hold each other accountable and can be committed for at least a year. Those are the kind of people in the groups that you're looking for. Ones that are going to build you up and lift you up and call you out when you start to go backwards or go back to your old ways because it's super easy to do that until we have created new neural grooves that are deeper and stronger than the ones that we had for the old habits. Personally, the times that I have done the best has been when I've had a group or two or three people at least that are there ready to work with me that I can talk to and socialize with that have the same common goal. When that's not there, I can be successful for a little bit, but it usually ends up going downhill. So to me, the group aspect and having that foundation and that support from other people, if it's not there, it's going to be extremely hard for any sort of change to take place. All right, so let's put this all together 
into a process and what it would look like to actually do this. So number one, once you have decided to make a change, you need to weigh the pros and cons. Writing out the pros and cons for what you want to change versus the pros and cons of staying the same. The goal is to have more reason to change. So where your pros list for the changing is outweighing the reasons for staying the same. So the pros being higher for staying the same. So you want to keep this handy and refer back to it, especially when things get hard. So you have this list, you have this these tangible reasons you can look at to remind you of why you're making this change and to keep you going forward. After you've done that and you are clear on making a change is the best option for you, all of you agrees, then you can start prepping. So that means research what is involved, how you can adjust your favorite recipes, anything regarding the food that you need. Listening to your body and really getting on board with what it's needing and not just going with whatever diet because your ex-second cousin's girlfriend lost weight doing whatever diet. Then you need to create a plan. What are you going to do when these emotions creep up? Because it's inevitable that some sort of emotion is going to show itself to you. And what will you do besides going to the pantry and getting food or eating ice cream because you're depressed? Like, what are your options? Have a list of those handy as well. Then when you are in the moment and feeling all of this, you can bring it out and do something different. Who is going to be your support system? This is the time to start looking for that and making sure that they understand the commitment of at least a year. Really making sure that everybody's on the same page and knowing what is involved and what is expected. There's something that I didn't really touch on, but it's very important, and that is reducing stress. Now, I'm not talking about managing stress when you are finding this calm place in the chaos. Now, we're not doing that. What I'm talking about is actually getting rid of the to-do list, finding ways to move the stress out of your life so it's not there at all. Because the more stressors you have, the harder it is to make the change. If you are already stressed out and you have all of these things bombarding you, and then you add more stress through change, it's going to make it even harder. So if we can actually get the stress out and away as much as possible, that helps us to set up an environment for success. One of the ways I like to do this is to write a list of everything you have to do. Anything that's stressing you, even the environment, If the environment is stressing you and you feel like you have to do something about it, write that down. Once you have your list, you can go back through. Can I delegate this item? Can I automate this in some way? There are so many ways now to automate your life from bill pay to grocery pickup to personal shoppers. Yes, some of these cost money and yes, that may not be easy for you to do. But we need to weigh in on how that's going to affect your life. What is that going to do to your health by adding that extra 3 or $4 onto your bill? Those are important things to look at, not just the financial aspect. So delegate where you can, 
automate. And then there's other things that we are worrying about that are stressing us out that there's nothing we can do about it. We got to work out a way to let those things go. You've made the decision, you've prepped, you've done your research, you have optimized your environment. So now you can start making preparations for your diet. So cleaning out the pantries. If you can't clean out the pantry because of objections from other people in the house, then make a designated area for your stuff. Buy and order any supplements or other items that you may need. If there's a juicer or a blender, or something like that that you need to get or you think would be helpful, buy that now. You know, start getting everything set up so when you go to begin, everything is ready. You have it all and you're prepared. After you have all of the preparation and all of your items and ready to go, that is when you commit. Now, the commitment is super important. If you do not commit, you are setting yourself up for failure. Some practitioners are seeing that without that commitment, it is extremely hard for their clients to stick with it. Having the commitment and the expectation that you are going to succeed. I'm not talking about just, oh yes, I'm committed. I am doing it. I'm meaning full body, almost in a ritual. So not to the extent of like a wedding where you have all of this expenses and stuff. But the similar type of feeling, you're going into this full on with all of your body, all of your heart, all of your soul, you're going to do this. And with all of the prep work that you have set up, the commitment really should be just an easy yes to the universe saying, I'm ready to do this. So when you commit like that, it sets off a cascade in your body, signaling that there is going to be a change. So your body also is prepared for this. So it's a lot less resistance. So again, the commitment is super important. Once you have committed, that is when you can begin. And then once you begin, it's all about sticking to the plan, maintenance, having your list, referring to it, leaning on your support and getting the resources you need, whatever comes up. You can deal with it at that point and you have everything laid out for you, ready to go. So I'm hoping that is helpful for you. And there's a lot of information there. You may have to go back and take notes. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to me at stayathomestarseed at gmail.com. Again, that's stayathomestarseed at gmail.com. And I can't wait to hear how this helps you.